A 2017 government report on youth and statistics reads the youth of the nation are trustees of prosperity. Youth force is dynamic in nature as most skills and orientations are acquired at this age. Youth is a huge reservoir of energy which needs to be tapped and harnessed intelligently for the development of society. Human resource potential of individuals not only gain maximum but also reach its peak. Okay, I'm going to redo that again. Okay, human resource potential of individuals not only gain maximum but also reaches its peak during this period. Youth in reality represent the present of a country. Young ones when nourished properly can grow like a huge redwood tree but if not controlled or neglected can erupt like a volcano. No country can afford to ignore its youth. While this might sound like a robot wrote it, this is in fact what most policy documents written by humans about the youth sound like. Reports like these look at our youth as problems that require solutions. Solutions like jobs, skills and education, solutions that make good citizens and of course get young people to settle down. So much of this is instrumentalist and it skirts around the questions of what is young India's identity. How do the youth see themselves in society? And what are their individual hopes and dreams? Welcome to In the Field, a show hosted by me Samyukta Varma and me Radhika Vishwanathan. In the Field is a show about India and development and the hard truths about our country, the ways in which we've set out to solve them. and the people doing this important work in this episode we're talking about india's youth who is a young person the united nations defines youth as someone who's between 15 and 24 and the 2003 national youth policy sought to address people aged 13 to 35 perhaps because coming of age is much later in india The 2014 policy addresses 15 to 29 year olds. It also points out that people between 15 to 29 years make up nearly a third or 27.5% of the population and that 34% of India's gross national income is contributed by this age group. It also says that the government invests around 2710 rupees per young individual per year through youth targeted programs such as higher education, skill development or healthcare. and non-targeted programs such as food subsidies or employment programs no statement about india's youth is complete without mentioning its great demographic dividend the young people in india the young productive workforce that make up a third of our population we hear about how our country needs to address this generation in order to and this is in the policy's own words empower the youth of the country to achieve their full potential and through them enable india to find its rightful place in the community of nations we look at the youth policy education policy the ministry of human resource development higher education the notion of the young person is that a little bit of fear a little bit of um, uh, wanting to domesticate and control the young person and the idea is to somehow keep them gainfully economically engaged um uh, get them married get them a job and then the problem is solved because now they are settled and then state and society and market can decide what young people should do Anita Rathnam is speaking here She's the founder of Samvada a 25 year old NGO that works with young people 
She says when they first started, we really didn't engage with the world of the young person or the immortal universe of the young person. I think the idea was to uh, inspire the young person, to provoke the young person uh, into saying that this is what is going on and you need to do something about it. Their early efforts were focused on sensitizing young people, which they did by exposing them to new ideas or books or people. However, along the way, they started to notice the deeper effects of this work. But it also sparked off uh, inner processes inside you which were impacted by your upbringing, your understanding of gender, your caste background, your class background. And so all conversations about what was out there also led to an inner dialogue of what was inside you. And so one could really not have this so-called sensitization as an exterior process. It was really a reconfiguring of your own internal landscape. Addressing these fundamental questions is at the heart of Samvada's method. Think back to those murky years in your life, between childhood and adulthood, when the constant push and pull between what you ought to do and what you thought you wanted to do played out. These are particularly confusing and vulnerable years when rebellion often expresses itself. Many young people run away from home and themselves, drop out of formal education, elope wear strange clothes, experiment in every possible way, and even take to crime. This tumultuous phase has always been well portrayed in popular media, from Amitabh Bachchan's angry young man to Rani's self-discovery in Queen to bearded Niven Pauli in Premam. The rites of passage have been chronicled in great detail and in many different ways. From Bildung's Roman films like Aparajito to the violent realities of Golal or Ayutha Ertu, where brutal college experiences meet early political life, depict how many young students are rudely introduced to the real world. Or even the incredibly tragic Hazaro Kwaeshe Esi, where the young intertwined lives of Gita, Vikram and Siddharth play out against the backdrop of social and political upheavals. If Dil Chata Hai and Wake Up Sid awakened a kindred spirit amongst more or less indolent rich kids who didn't know what to do with their lives, and three idiots exposed the pressures of family obligation, expectation and conformity, Kaka Muttai, Salam Bombay and Slumdog Millionaire gave us a glimpse of the struggles of young people growing up in abject poverty, fighting against all odds to catch a break. There are also the many adaptations of Romeo and Juliet type love stories played out Desi style, and movies like Queen highlighting the struggles of young women in India today. And this is just what we remember and what we watched. Today, coming of age plays itself out on the internet. Every production company worth its salt has a youth YouTube channel. Here's Anita again. Young people do need mentoring, guidance, support. Um, they need crisis intervention. Maybe we know that young people today uh, are the most vulnerable to suicide, young people are malnourished, young people um, are self-destructive. Uh, so how do you keep young people hopeful, idealistic, without being overly romantic, but having an ideal that one has a practical way of working towards, without falling into despair, without going to violence, without hitting the bottle. But on the ground, Many programs that work with young people tend not to address these issues. In a large proportion of programs that are aimed at young people, young people are often seen as instruments. 
So then the young person is coming in there as a campaigner or as a um, person who is not important, but the issue is more important. Um, so that is one way of looking at young people. And then seeing young people as not just agents or instruments, but as people who have a stake in creating a better society and who have a responsibility. So the notion I think that has changed over time with people like Sambada really is we do not see young people as beneficiaries or as people to be instructed or as people to be sermonized to. We see them as people who have core partners in creating a better world. Youths outside just spend time with each other. Girls and boys chat, they play the fool, they smoke cigarettes, they drive around. Personally, for me, whatever confusion we have, youth are mentally stressed, don't think we aren't. All these confusions, Samvada as a friend has helped us work through these confusions. These are things we can't speak with other friends or with our parents. And Samvada has created a space for us. It gave us the perspective and confidence to think that we can be agents of change. If I can speak here today, it's that Samvada has shown me that I have the confidence to speak to you here like this. I think this understanding of partnering with young people is still not um, pervasive in the social sector. There are some organizations who would um, involve young people to make their issue a success, right? So I would involve young people in my, my movement to save a lake or to reduce feticide or whatever. We have the largest young workforce in the world. We also know what challenges our youth face, from mental health issues, serious and growing concern, to the huge demand for jobs. What Anita says we don't do enough of is to help young people understand and make sense of themselves in relation to the institutions that shape society. Things like family, community, citizenship, state, or the market. And when young people start to express their discomfort with these things, that's when things get challenging. So how do we help young people negotiate with and come to terms with these fundamental questions of identity and their place in society? Family in India is strong, but family may not be where these young people want to go to figure these things out. Family comes with expectation and obligation. Back at Samvada, we asked the youth mentor, Manjula, what she thought of young people and their attitudes towards politics, given that it shapes ideas of society. Manjula is a big fan of the recent movie, Humble Politician Nagraj. She told us of a conversation she had with the cohort she mentors, and how some of them told her that they'd rather not vote because A, politicians are corrupt, and B, they're not particularly interested in what you think and want anyway. They're just used to advance their own political campaigns. Even if someone stands in politics, they won't include me. They will just use me to push the banner or poster up. And if we speak well into the mic, they will ask us to speak, but not say what we want to say. They will ask us to speak for them. There's no decision-making capability associated with youth. So how can they be a part of politics? So now, off late, it's a business. 
As soon as voting starts, a group of people will make noise or galata in one corner and then do it in another. They use unemployed youth. And they say we are giving you work. They employ youth but don't make youth part of the politics. And in all sorts of ways. Youth actually don't have that feeling that they want to fight and make galata. But they are used. We speak about love for one's country. Whether the country does something for me or not, I have to feel love for my country. That's how they target the youth. Krishna Bairigauda is one of India's younger, new politicians, an ex-youth Congress head who is now a sitting member at the Karnataka Legislative Assembly. When we caught up with him last month, he told us that the political system cannot ignore young people, And while it may not have done a very good job so far in reaching out and including young people, he wants this gap to shrink. Remember, they're the demographic dividend. They're a large voting segment and increasingly becoming opinion makers of society. But it can't be a one-way street. I understand your frustrations with politics, but staying away from political systems is not the way to solve it. There has to be engagement. There are various levels of engagement. You could just be a conscious voter. That is the first level of engagement. If you want to move beyond that, you could be your own community level activist, being a bridge between the political administrative systems and your local community. So that's one level of engagement, actually an active level of engagement. So beyond that, you have serious political aspirations, then you can be part of the political system as well. You know, people look at being an MLA, MP or something beyond, but that's not even 1% of the electoral field. You have Gram Panchayat members, you have, you know, Jilla Panchayat members, you have municipal councillors, you have corporation councillors. So there are various levels that youth must also look at. That is the final question that I always ask the youth that one is to look at an MLA minister or somebody and immediately associate him or her with politics. But real politics happens when you actually dedicate yourself and your several years of your life to move up through the chain. Right Now, that is the final question. Do you have that commitment to work through the chain, move up the chain, make the necessary sacrifices, put in the necessary hard work to reach that position. For the longest time, the development sector has talked about the importance of working with girls and young women the strong, educated and empowered women we want India to have, that we're trying to nurture and protect at all costs. But today, the development sector, and perhaps this extends to society all over the world, is starting to address the question of whether we have forgotten our boys. Have we spent too much time thinking about women, how to empower girls, at the cost of young men? This isn't to say that the work is finished. We have a long way to go to making an equal society, and to battle patriarchy we will always have to keep working with our girls and women. But boys have always been peripheral in this fight, and perhaps even ignored. What kind of boys and men do we want to have? 
The past five years have seen a lot more interest in working with the idea of masculinities. So how did it all start? Will Muir, speaking here, came to India in the late 2000s and found himself running community cinemas for low-income neighborhoods in Pune. The idea was to get people together and have them watch movies and then use the coming together to talk about other social issues. And the cinemas actually were were failing and one of the reasons they were failing is the only people who were coming to them were adolescent boys and this was a surprise but when i explored why i learned that fathers were working mothers were also working in the home and girls were simply not allowed out of the home unless it was for an important reason, perhaps school. And when I started to ask, what are the social issues that boys face? Everybody I spoke to, all of the social development practitioners said, no, 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 we don't work with boys. Uh, We work with women and girls because women and girls face violence and discrimination. This led Will to set up the Equal Community Foundation that works with adolescent boys. In their research, they found that Boys were growing up in communities and they were basically learning attitudes and behaviours that not only discriminate against women and girls, but also place their own health at risk. If you look at the rates of gender-based violence, the majority of incidences um, are perpetrated by boys and men. If you look at the rates of mental health and suicide, the majority of these cases are with boys and men. And therefore, boys and men have a set of issues which are largely invisible to the social sector in India. The idea of including men is not new. Most of the organizations working on gender in India tend to engage boys not as an end in itself. Mostly, they are parts of larger programs with other objectives. Gender theorists and practitioners and people working on equality and equity have campaigned for this for years. It has never made sense to leave men and boys out, especially when it comes to looking at the problem of gender-based violence. Organizations are trying to think more deeply about what kind of work they need to do with boys, And it's not enough to just add men and stall. Will's organization works at the intersection of gender equality and women's rights, but also at the intersection of human rights and boys' health and well-being. To get a better idea of what it takes to build a program that looks at reshaping the identities of young men, we talked to Manak Matiani from the Delhi-based YP Foundation, a feminist organization focused on nurturing youth leadership. YP has worked with young men as part of all their programs, especially programs that are about sexual education. However, a lot of their curriculum on gender and sexuality was geared towards working with girls and young women. Their material was written for girls, and it didn't work for boys. It especially didn't address the specific pressures of being a young man. Here Manak explains, and we apologize in advance for the audio quality. That has prompted us over the last one year to create a curriculum on masculinities that can be run with uh, boys from the age of 13 plus. 
which is a merge between you know a curriculum on gender uh, health body and sexual uh, you know sexuality education and looking at masculinity and what kind of pressures uh, or what kind of experiences of men or boys are in that realm so really trying to find for ourselves the picture of what does feminist leadership of young men mean in a context which automatically gives leadership to young men so even on issues of gender and violence when suddenly you know young men come and start doing something or start sort of entering a protest kind of space everybody gives attention to them because you know then suddenly there are boys talking about the things that women have been talking about uh, for many years that nobody has listened to if men already hold all the power in society and society is patriarchal what kind of work needs to be done to show what a different model of leadership looks like a feminist model and what does a feminist leader look like and so these are like the couple of concerns which have came together for us to really try and figure out what does work on examining masculinity um you know and not really just coming at it from a preventing violence against women point of view but examining masculinity is in trying to sort of work with young men to look at you know what really shapes their perception of what it means to be a man how masculinity is perceived and how they can start sort of reorienting themselves to imagine it differently in spite of the pressure to work with men to specifically address gender based violence manak says yp refuses to take an instrumentalist approach they run a program called mardon wali baat where small groups of 17 to 25 year olds examine deeper questions about their masculinity their gender and their own position in the world as young men one of the things they address in this program is relationships with the men he works with mostly self admitted heterosexuals manak says he sees a gap in how they think about their relationships i think uh, what really came out was that there are so few spaces in which young men really learn to interact with women as friends interact with women as anything apart from they you know their mothers or sisters or their wives that makes sense given what's in our most popular books and movies skewed ideas about romantic love and courtship my cousin calls it the danish school of love where the common not very good looking guy pretty much stalks the girl until she agrees to accept his love and then suddenly it's all rosy and wonderful his suffocating love however unwanted is always justified because it's pure and his perseverance cannot be ignored no matter how creepy it is nearly every actor has played this role to impressionable young minds though this normalizes offensive behavior and suddenly danush golden star mohanlal salman khan you name it make the unacceptable acceptable southasia.art is an instagram account that i follow they posted a beautiful feature on the subject of women in public spaces some months ago the post's curator confessed that she had amassed a horde of screenshots and clips from films that show women out and about in the city a clip of a woman drinking pepsi her face awash in the red gloss of street lights a lone woman walking home alone along the tracks another of a woman watching the waves at marine drive it's beautiful but it also makes you feel an involuntary instinct of fear for these women why is it that the loafer or the loiterer is never female and it's finally starting to be taken seriously such as with the campaigns for the anti stalking bill but only after horrific incidents of women being killed by their stalkers manak finds that many of the young men he has worked with seem marked by their first romantic or sexual relationships or their first interactions with young women which on many occasions may not have been successful 
but it was just alarming uh, or surprising actually not alarming to just learn how for really young boys who are say 20 18 19 uh, the first relationship they had with a girl and everything that you know happened in that relationship when it ended was like ab mujhe usne dhoka de diya so whether this girl is you know told them that i don't want to be with you anymore whether this girl started seeing somebody else whether the girl said i don't like you everything was just dhoka usne mujhe dhoka de diya hai she has betrayed me and this betrayal colors all of their perspectives on women uh and and that's really i mean and the kind of way in which they held on to it to say that you know this is how all women are and this is how um, you know now i will engage with other relationships that i might have in future where i will be guarded i will be a person way because this is what has happened in my life the truth of the matter is that young men are just as clueless as young women about their bodies and their sexuality but they're expected to know and to play it cool and spaces for healthy cross gender interaction don't really exist and so uh, it is uh, it really limits the ability of young people to have that cross gender interaction which is healthy happy which doesn't really have to be you know romantic but can get romantic without um, threat and and that seems to be a particular gap area there's language in which you can talk to a girl to say i like you which is not threatening which is not violent which is not going to put her at um, you know immediately on on the defense is completely missing we don't sort of uh, speak to young people about that we don't support young people being in relationships and that seems to be the seat of a lot of confusion a lot of you know uh, not knowing how to sort of um have a conversation with a girl apart from just making a comment at her when we visited samvada to attend one of their youth sessions one of the things that we were most struck by was the ease with which the young men and women interacted with each other it was a safe space that allowed these young people to let go and there was a familiar casual easy way of talking touching being playful and sitting with each other one of the challenges that comes up when working in gender and this is often leveled at programs targeting women and men is that it's difficult to measure impact how can you tell if your program created a genuine change in the behavior thoughts and attitudes of the boys you're working with how would you monitor it and doesn't it take a long time to see this kind of change manifest will muir says he has an answer he doesn't buy the story that it is hard to work with boys a more outrageous claim he makes is that it isn't hard to measure progress and impact so the the most obvious change that we see is that boys for the first time come together and they talk about these very difficult issues gender sex relationships with their peers and to begin with they tend to muck around and they tend to laugh and joke about these issues but over time you can see that they begin to understand the relevance of these issues and therefore they stop joking about these issues as much and they start talking about them with a level of sincerity and interest that that illustrates how important these issues are and how relevant the program is and that is that is absolutely an observable behavior change when the boys come into the program they're mucking around and joking about um they're joking about you know the human anatomy so that so that uh, everybody finds it funny but within weeks they've actually settled into a serious discussion about 
these issues. All the organizations we spoke to told us that while it is challenging, it's not difficult to identify milestones and outcomes. What you need is time and the thought to develop the right strategies. Yeah, do. We'll catch up. But but you know what? It's it, The other thing is that, let's be clear, right? Um, there's, there's a lot of, um, am I allowed to say this in, on, on, on your show? There's a lot of bullshit, right? And, and, and so we have a, I have a real problem, um, uh, with the language that's used. So can you imagine spending a million pounds engaging boys, right? That would be a, that would be a surefire way of burning through a million pounds. Imagine engaging boys for a million pounds. Now imagine spending a million pounds making sure boys' attitudes are gender equitable. The point, the, the point is that everyone talks about engaging boys. Well, that's just bullshit, right? That's just nonsense. We can't, we can't spend a million pounds engaging boys. There's no point engaging boys unless you are actually changing their attitudes and behaviors. For example, Manik says it's easy to get a bunch of boys to do campaigns in public and reach out to a thousand people, but getting them to speak to 50 of their friends and peers about sexuality and gender is much more difficult. So let's not even talk about engaging boys. Let's just talk about changing boys' attitudes and behaviours. And people will tell you that it's not possible, it's too expensive, it's too difficult to measure boys' attitudes and behaviours. And the answer to that is it is not. It is easy to measure boys' attitudes and behaviours. And there are, there are a ton of tools through which you can do that. The problem is people and practitioners and funders are not, um, they are not strict enough effectively with the allocation of money. And so a lot of money is going to be spent over the next decade engaging boys without any tangible outcome. And it's one of my goals to prevent that waste of money from happening. Because when resources are scarce, we simply can't afford to spend them on practice that has no demonstrable outcome. It's important to remember that there are many identities that young boys and girls have. And masculinity itself has many dimensions. And then caste and class and religion also inform one's sense of self. Boys and girls are eternally caught in a net of entrenched hierarchies and age-old imaginations. And this comes with costs. What we don't want is for the safety net to close in on them and become a fishing net. In the Pulitzer Prize-winning book by Catherine Boo, Behind the Beautiful Forevers, one of the main supporting characters is a young boy in his mid-teens who lives in the swampy slum abutting the airport and works in the five-star hotel down the road. Boo eloquently narrates how Rahul tells his friend about life on the other side. Many of the waiters, she writes in his voice, were college-educated, tall and light-skinned, with cell phones so shiny their owners could fix their hair in the reflections. Some of the waiters had mocked Rahul's long, blue-painted thumbnail, which was high-masculine style at Anawadi. When he cut the nail off, 
they teased him about how he talked. The Anawadian's deferential term for a rich man, Saab, was not the proper term in the city's moneyed quarters. He in turn reported to his friends, The waiters say it makes you sound D-class, like a tapori, he said. The right word is saw. I'll search the Google. There is a... This young man says he wanted to watch the movie, but it was only showing in the mall, where it cost between 300 and 400 rupees, and he didn't have that kind of money to spend on a film. When we work with young people, we are focusing on not on the poorest of the poor. We are working with a very slim layer of young people who are the first generation of youth who have reached college. Uh, with great difficulty they are there and their studying is precarious. They may drop out any minute uh, because they've got a job or a good boy comes along or whatever reason. And so your being in college itself is a miracle. You're completing it is a bigger miracle or getting a job that later to your studying or your dreams is a third miracle. Now you're there and we are working with that section of young people. The goal has to be to help young people find meaning in what they do. It's not about having a job for the sake of it, even if it's necessary. I think the, the locking that's happening now is that young people are being pulled out of education because of survival. And we are talking about mobility. right? So where is mobility going to come? Everyone's just busy surviving. How do I manage to help my family to survive while also looking at my mobility and my parents' mobility? I don't mean just mobility in terms of economics. I mean in terms of choices, in terms of choice of occupations, in terms of other aspirations. The idea of mobility is particularly acute today because the so-called rewards that one can reap are so in our face. The fancy cars, the clothes, the restaurants, the malls, the new homes and the shiny phones. And everyone has seen or knows people who have moved very quickly up and out. Or at least all they see are the rags beginning and the riches end. The frustration is that I want it, but I don't know how to get it, right? Uh, my parents don't have the money, I don't have the language, I don't have the urbaneness, whatever. For so many different reasons, I'm not able to get onto that escalator that can take me up there. So I'm watching everyone else going and I'm getting more and more mad and angry. So the idea is that young people need to be given a space to talk about what their dreams are, uh, what their frustrations are, and being helped to make realistic plans. Because I get very sad when I hear young people say I want to become president of India and you know that kind of and they say these things I become <laughs> IAS officer you don't even know what IAS stands for so it is you just um, have this rags to riches fantasies and so it really bites the boy we heard earlier who said he couldn't see the movie because he couldn't afford the three hundred rupees it costs at the mall it can all get very disappointing very quickly. But what we need is to be able to help young people during that critical phase and to get their dreams to talk to their realities. Rethinking one's aspiration, um, coming from fantasy to reality, having a plan, having a path that I feel good about, that uh, has got both short-term and long-term measures. Uh, That is a very intense dialogue. Across society, the idea of staying within the family's work area still holds strong. As Anita says, there's history in all our aspirations. So it's really hard for a young person to break away and to aspire for something else. How do you confront that person back and say, like, think without your gender, caste, class, religious background, just think as a person what you want to be and have you really even thought of yourself? The tragedy is people say that no one's ever asked us this question. 
it's assumed that if your father has a nursing home, you'll be a doctor, if your grandfather was a judge, you'll be a, a judge or whatever. So there is history in all our aspirations. And I think that history can be both a burden and a privilege. How do you actually peel it off and really think about what I want to do? Ultimately, every young person should be able to do what makes them happy. That's the ideal world. That is not going to happen tomorrow. But uh, how can I then work towards make, doing something that will make me happy, that will make my parents happy, that's real and I can afford it? You never fully get over the loss of what you give up in your youth. These decisions come back to haunt you forever. The feeling of remorse, being haunted by what you didn't do, couldn't do, the choices you didn't make and the paths you couldn't take. What's the preventative of that disease? Being able to peacefully reconcile those choices and being able to accept yourself and those around you for the choices you made. That's what growing up is. And that's the end of the show. Don't forget to donate. Our fundraising campaign is still on. Your support would give life to a whole bunch of new episodes. And if you do support us, drop us an email and tell us what you'd like us to talk about. Some of you already have. For this episode, thanks to Will Muir and Anjana Goswami from the Equal Community Foundation, Ishita Chaudhary and Manak Matiani from the YP Foundation, Roshan Shankar, Anita Ratnam, Nitya Vasudevan, Manjula and the folks at Sambada and Krishna Bhairi Gowda. In the Field is produced and hosted by Radhika Vishwanathan and Samyukta Varma. We are supported by Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies. So until next time, from the entire team, Priya, Santosh and Hollis, a big thank you. And please do subscribe for updates on our website. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We're at In the Field India.